podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Spectacular. It's sunny. How are you? I'm good. It's overcast. But we're <laughs> hoping for a bit of sun. We're hoping for a bit of sun. We're not blessed with good weather here in, in rural, 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 rural Ireland. Uh, Downey gets better weather where he is. We've got lakes and mountains and stuff around us and the weather's a bit more harsh. But... Not to worry, we are recording this on a Monday before Liverpool take on Leeds in the Premier League at Elland Road, hoping to witness a victory tonight. But to distract ourselves from the thoughts of another away defeat against a crap team, we are going to do a few different things today. The first thing we're going to do, Carl, is we're going to look at the Champions League, where in the first leg of the quarterfinals, I think... It's fair to say the standout performance was Manchester City 3, Bayern Munich 0. Now, City, I thought, looked deadly in that game. But I thought Bayern Munich's defensive display, mostly in the second half, was about as shambolic as you're likely to see at this stage of the competition from any team. I'm getting the sense that you're not fully in agreement with uh, Tommy Tuchel that his side pretty much matched Man City other than a couple of key moments. Um, I mean, I do think there's a little bit of merit to that because I, I do think in the first half, Bayern created a couple of really good openings. Mm. I thought Sané got into some great positions getting in behind that City defence and Bayern just didn't take advantage of it. But in that second half, Upamecano just, I mean, that's one of the worst individual performances I've seen this season. It was absolutely terrible. He was all over the place, giving the ball away really, really cheaply. Hmm. Um, one of the goals was he was directly to blame because he tried to dribble the ball out and Jack Grealish took it off him. I, I just thought they were, in many ways, masters of their own demise because... Like I said, I do think City looked brilliant, but I, I, it was in that second half, Bayern gave them a big helping hand by just be, seemingly being willfully self-destructive. I thought there were a couple of odd selection choices made by Tuchel to start with. Um, but that, you're absolutely right. They, they created like a lot of really good openings or, or very nearly really good openings. I think Kingsley Coleman was another one first half. He got in so many good positions and had the ball in decent positions as well. But then there were a few times like Navri's run wasn't quite right or Musiala, I thought, held on to it for too long, two or three times when it, a quick pass 
probably put somebody in. Um, I think that Man City's, you know, the the 3-2 at the back system that they've been using, it was a little bit more rigid out of possession this time. Stones was really dropping alongside Diaz most of the time. And I think that that, I think it helped Bayern initially because then there was a bit more space in midfield because the, the line of four ahead of Rodri and Stones was not really becoming any deeper themselves. So a lot of the time when Bayern did have the ball in the attacking half, it was Rodri against two or three at times. So I think that that's where a lot of their good chances came from. But once they stopped that good build-up through the middle and really, really quick transitions, I think that's when a lot of Bayern's problems started. I mean, individually, you're right. The Pamagana was a... I don't even know what the word for it was. A Lovren, shall we say? Just just to keep it, you know, in the family mm. as such. It was it was really, really poor decision-making. I don't think the subs helped at all when they came on for Bayern. I don't think they made the team better. Um, obviously, we, we can discuss the, the Mane situation if you wish, but there's uh, conflicting reports, let's say, about what went on there. So whether or not it was a something pre-game as well uh, is, is difficult to determine, but they've left themselves quite a lot to do, let's, let's be fair. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a near impossible task in the second leg. I, I do think with better decision-making from Coleman and Sane and Nabry in certain moments, potentially they score one, maybe even two goals in that game. And that's not to detract from how City played. Uh, I thought they were very good. Like you said, some of the rotations were a little bit loose because with this shape, the idea is that one of the midfielders drops back into centre-back and the other four, the, the four advanced midfielders drop back and form a 4-5-1 out of possession. But City didn't have that going in the first half. And like you said, Bayern were able to exploit that that space that was left. Um, the Mane thing is, is bizarre. I, I don't know what you would have to say to Sadio Mane who we know is quite a fiery character, but he's also a very restrained and respectful character. And I don't know what you'd have to say to him for him to react by striking out. It it just seems to me, based on having watched Sadio for six years, both on and off the pitch and listening to everything that he's, he's said in interviews and what people say about him, it was just so totally out of character for him that I really would call into question what it was that Leroy Sané said, because it has to have been something quite, quite bad to get Sadio to react that way. Yeah, I mean, there has been obviously all kinds of reports and people can go and look them up if they want, who you choose to believe or who you think has most credibility in what they've said is a, as usual, a matter of uh, subjective opinion, really. Um, whether or not we find out what actually happened, I don't know. It certainly doesn't make Bayern's case any easier in terms of team building, in terms of um, you know real determination within the side to bounce back and have a go at its second leg, even in terms of the title fight, I suppose. Uh, Mane obviously missed one match there for them. Uh, so I presume he'll be back involved with the squad this weekend. Uh, sorry, this midweek for the second leg. So whether that translates into him playing any meaningful part, I guess we'll uh, probably suggest not, but we wait and see. Yeah, I mean, look, we've, we've seen incidents where teammates have had physical altercations and it has galvanised the group. Liverpool, famously, the Craig Bellamy, John Arnorisa situation. Like... It can be turned into a positive thing that unites the squad, but 
it will depend on whether there's been a, a loss of respect, whether there's you know lingering animosity between the two players. But I, I still think Bayern can beat City at home. I just don't feel like they can overcome that level of deficit because to do so, they'd have to get very attacking and be very aggressive. And that will leave opportunities for City, especially with Haaland in full demon mode like he is at the moment. I mean, it's it's outrageous, the, the current level of form that he's displaying. Um, what's your what's your thoughts on the second leg? Um, I, I do agree that Bayern are capable of winning the game, but I don't think they'll actually go even remotely close to going through. And if it's sort of Let's say they're 1-0 and nothing quite happens to make it the two. I wouldn't be surprised if the game kind of peters out a bit and even City get an equaliser. So I'll go 1-1. I'll go 2-1 to Bayern, but yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think it could get to the point where, you know, if, if, if City score early, it's over. But if Bayern can get ahead and then they struggle to kind of find that second goal, it, it could become quite stale because City have nothing to really drive them forward. They're they're the ones in a very comfortable position here. Uh, moving on, the other game that was played that same night, Benfica nil, Inter Milan 2. In Lisbon, this was a big surprise to me. I not only thought Benfica would win that game, I thought they'd win the tie, but Barella scores and Lukaku scores and Simone Inzaghi pulls off an outstanding victory for an Inter team that have been very disappointing this season against the Benfica side that have looked very, very impressive. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy, by searching for Anfield Index. Yeah, I don't think you're. Uh, I don't think you're being as accurate as you usually are when you're discussing Inter Milan. There, I think they've been garbage this season. Really, really poor. Even at the weekend again, absolutely dismal performance. Uh, how I haven't watched this game of Benfica until I've not watched it back other than the goals, and I'm struggling to imagine how they pulled off a result like this because Benfica have been. Really aggressive this season, really capable of um, not just big moment, big results, but big moments in matches where it matters. Uh, been really consistent in terms of personnel in, in key areas and partnerships and all of that. And I thought on the big stage, on the biggest game of their season, really, they would really turn up and put in a massive performance. But, mm. you know, fair enough, fair play to Inter. They've, they've got the result they needed and followed it up with a 1-0 home defeat against Monza, which is much more in keeping with their season. Yeah. Um, so... I guess we can say well done to them, but whether they can turn that one result into much more of a consistent finish to the season, I, I very much have my doubts. I would still make them last favourites to win the Champions League out of whoever goes through from all the ties. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if we just look at, at Inter, since they 
beat Porto in the first leg, which was a 1-0 home win. They lost to Bologna. Then they beat Lecce, who are going down, if I'm not mistaken. No, they're not actually. Well, they're in the relegation kind of battle, but they're not very good. Then they lost to Spezia. Then they drew with Porto in the second leg. They lost to Juventus. They lost to Fiorentina. They drew with Juventus in the cup. They drew with Salernitana. They were not a team in form. They were a team out of form, as displayed by the defeat to Monza uh, on Saturday. But somehow they pulled this off. Now, Benfica, they've had a little wobble domestically. They had lost Porto on the Friday before this game. And that was fine because watching that game, it felt like they were holding back. But then they lost to Chavez this past weekend, which was a huge uh, upset because Chavez are sitting in mid-table, some 30-odd points behind them. Um, but it, it might just be a thing that they've got all focus on this this second leg. But I mean, given that that loss to Chavez came with like you know deep into stoppage time, and Benfica had had all the game and all the chances. I think mm. probably say that that was either uh, an overcommitting late on, or this is like a, a moment in the season which has got them mentally basically. In those last couple of big results, which have gone against them, have sort of made everything go against them as such. Exactly. Now. I wouldn't put it past them to go to Milan and beat Inter 2-0. Yeah. But I think Inter are in a very strong position here. So I'm going to back I'm going to back Inter to go through. But I think they'll have some hairy moments in that in that second leg. I'll say Benfica to win that game 2-1. I'm going to go for chaos. 2-0 Benfica into extra time and we'll see what happens then. Oh lovely. I'll take that. An early goal for Benfica could like suddenly swap all of that mentality stuff around. If... Completely. And, and Inter, as we've seen multiple times this season, are very capable of just collapsing. So if Benfica can get an early goal, Inter will, will help them along the way in trying to get back into that one. Um, Milan won, Napoli nil. Ishmael Benesher with the only goal of the game. Zambo Wangisa sent off for Napoli. No, Victor Osman and Napoli just did not look the same level of team without him. Now he is due to be back this for the second leg, which is massive. Mm. Um, they played Verona at the weekend. Uh, Osman did come off the bench, so you'll expect that he'll start against Milan. But again, this is just a, a little mini wobble. For Napoli, these last couple of games, they weren't particularly impressed. They got walloped by by Milan in the league. They weren't particularly impressive against Lecce. Uh, they did win 2-1. Then they lose to Milan in the Champions League. Then they draw with Verona at the weekend. And Verona are, well, they're awful. So um, you'd hope that we get the best of Napoli in this second leg because they've had such a spectacular season. They have the league pretty much wrapped up. They're 14 points clear with eight games to go. But they promise so much, you'd hope that they can deliver on that and and advance. And if they do advance, you'd fancy them to make the final against either Benfica or Inter in that semi-final. Yeah, I think whoever goes through from this tie should make the final, to be honest. Um, I mean, AC Milan against Benfica has an awful lot of history and weight behind it as a semi-final. Let's be fair, that, that would be a bit of a... A cracker to watch even if the standard is not quite as high as on the other side um but then you've got 
a potential Milan derby as well if both the sides who are ahead go through. So there's lots to look out for anyway. Napoli were really disappointing first leg other than the first 20 minutes. I mean, 20 minutes in, they could have been 3-0 up in this game. Feature had one cleared off the line. Uh, Lavocca had a really good opening. I think it was Zielinski for another one as well. But, right, you say, no, Simeon, playing Elmas up front absolutely didn't work. I didn't even realise that he was up front until about 40 minutes into the game. He was nowhere well, I don't think he did either. <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, he did not have a very good game there. I mean, Zambon is actually a really big loss. He was playing very, very well in the team. Mm. He was the one really trying to drive them forward. But, you know, brainless two yellows in five minutes, that's not really going to help anybody, is it? Um, at the weekend, they did rest loads of players, obviously. Kvitschel, yeah. Simeon, you mentioned, came on. Feature came on. Lebok came on. Zielinski came on. Um, Jesus played centre-back, so they rested uh, Rahmani. So there was lots and lots of changes there, I think, to keep themselves fully geared up and, and energised. But I just wonder if this is like the point in the season now where they're kind of just running out of steam. Because like you say, it's been three or four performances in a row now where they've not been great. Um, the, the, the Milan defeat, I don't... I didn't think that that was going to like play particularly heavily on their mind in terms of like, you know, oh, you know, this team's got our number or anything like that. They beat them earlier in the season. Mm. And even in the 4-0, although the, the scoreline was like a walloping, Napoli had loads of good chances. Napoli had loads of good moments in the game. But Milan's goals, basically all of them came from individual unbelievable brilliance. Like every single one of those goals pretty much was, and, and the chances beyond the goals came from really quick breaks Liao or Salamek has taken on like four people at once all of a sudden, all this sort of stuff. Everything went from Milan that game. So I do think that Napoli have got plenty of chance to come back in this. Yeah. But they have to start well. And if they don't score straight away, they can't lose their way like they did in the first leg. Because after about half an hour, they had very, very little. Yeah. Yeah. They seemed to just almost retreat into themselves and it was like they were overthinking everything. The, the reason I want Napoli to come through from this game more than anything else is I think they're the only team from this side of the bracket who could potentially trouble Real City or let's say Benfica or Bayern some find a way through. I don't feel like, I, I feel like if it's not Napoli, then the final becomes... As done as it was when we played Spurs. Yeah, you know, like, it's going to be a bit of a procession. It would take a spectacular collapse from mm. any of those other teams on the other side not to beat Inter, Milan or Benfica. Napoli, for me, are the one team that can cause them trouble. And I do agree, they do look to be running out of steam a little bit, but... Domestically, if they draw their last eight games, they'll win the league. Because Lazio are not going to make up this. Lazio are going to drop points here and there. Because that's just the nature of this Lazio team. They're on a good run at the moment with four wins in a row. But, you know, Napoli don't need to finish strongly domestically. 14-point lead, eight games to go, so 24 points left to play for realistically they could win four lose four and that's the title wrapped up no matter what uh Lazio do Lazio could win all their eight games so Napoli can maybe pick and choose their moments a little bit and if you look at their league fixtures you know they get Salernitana at home that should be a comfortable win Udinese that should be a win 
Fiorentina are in great form, so maybe a draw there. But Mons is a win. Sampdori's win. There are easy easy games there that they can just target. Go win those games. Forget about the rest. Forget about the Juve game. Forget about the Inter game. Just go and win four of the other six. And that takes care of that. And that should allow them to keep themselves relatively fresh for these Champions League games, assuming they get past Milan. The semi-final, like we said, it will be Inter or Benfica. You would you would bet heavily on Napoli to beat either of them. And then if they can go to the final well-rested, then, then they'll be in good shape. Unfortunately for them, though, <clears throat> the Serie A campaign runs very late this year. And there's games, I think, either side of the European Cup final. What dates the European Cup final this year? The final is... Oh, no, June 10th is the final. So they would have a... They would have their last league game against Torino the week before. But, I mean, again, maybe that's an advantage because City will have had three weeks off by the time the Champions League final comes around, if it's them that gets through. And maybe Napoli playing up to that would would have an advantage of, of just being in rhythm and being, you know, used to playing games. Um, I'm going to back Napoli to go through. I think they might do it in style. I'll say 3-0 Napoli. Oof. I'll go not quite as heavy, but I'll still say Napoli and 2-0. Okay, and then the last one. So Carlo Ancelotti's Real Madrid beat Frank Lampard's Chelsea 2-0 and not really have to break sweat in doing so. Uh, Benzema scores on 21. Ben Chilwell sent off on 59. And Asensio giving Real a little bit of extra breathing room on 74. I I did feel like Real at any point could potentially have just gone through the gears and opened that Chelsea team up because I thought Chelsea were genuinely terrible on the night. Dismal. Uh, this was a training game. That's all I can say about it. This is basically a match. Angelotti's side went out and played because they had to after about, I don't know, let's say 25 minutes. It became very apparent that Chelsea had no response to going behind, no response to anything Real Madrid wanted to do, to be perfectly honest. There was not a lot of work rate needed on the home side's part to keep the ball or to keep Chelsea out. They had very, very little goal threat. That's obviously something Chelsea have struggled with previously, not just under Lampard now, but he certainly hasn't solved it. And Chelsea are, for a club at this stage of the Champions League, in their season, they are quite a long way, or a long time now without winning a game. It's, mm. you know, it's a bit of a concern for them, obviously, but what you've just said, I think you can probably just repeat for the second leg. Carlo Ancelotti's Real Madrid beat Frank Lampard's Chelsea easily, 2-0. Yeah, w- without any real effort involved, I- I'd imagine what they'll look to do is get that game wrapped up by half-time and then just start bringing players off and, and resting. I'm surprised if he starts a few of the other ones as well, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible because the, the Chelsea just aren't a threat. I mean, if we look at Chelsea since they came back from the World Cup. They beat Bournemouth at a time when most teams were beating Bournemouth. 
drew with Forest, lost to City, lost to Fulham. They beat Palace, who were in a really, really bad run of form. Drew at Liverpool, drew at Fulham, drew at West Ham, lost to Southampton, lost to Spurs, beat Leeds, everybody beats Leeds, beat Leicester, everybody beats Leicester, drew at Everton, who are awful, lost to Villa, drew at Liverpool, lost to Wolves, and lost to Brighton at the weekend, and didn't just lose to Brighton, on their home pitch, got comprehensively torn apart by Brighton. They've also been knocked out of the FA Cup since the World Cup break. Heavy defeat by Man City. Obviously, in the Champions League, they've had a modicum of success. That being that they've won one of their three games in that competition. A 2-0 victory in the second leg against Borussia Dortmund, which was quite controversial in nature because the penalty was questionable and there was another couple of refereeing decisions in that game that were questionable. So Chelsea are just in dreadful form. They look lost. They don't look like they've got any cohesion. It's five wins from we looking 10, 15, 17, 18. Five wins from 21 games since coming back from the World Cup. And four of them have been against really poor Premier League teams. Like really poor. They don't stand a chance against this Real Madrid team. And they're managed by a PE teacher. So, uh, you know, it, it's just... they they In the three games under Lampard, Carl, never once have I thought Chelsea are going to win this game. Never once. Even when they went one up against Brighton, I had no belief that they were going to win that game. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think most of the supporters are feeling that way as well, to be perfectly honest. Um, it's just a campaign for them to get over and done with as quickly as possible. And they're not alone in that, I know. But for Chelsea in particular, this has been a horror show of a year when it was supposed to be like a big new start. So they have a lot of uh, work to do between now and you know, July, really, not even August. Um, and, and you know what, for Real Madrid, like I said, it's an opportunity for them to rest, not just because this isn't a big game or this is an easy game or anything like that, but because a few of the players who have been coming in and out recently have actually been playing really well. People like Marco mm. Sensio scored second leg, played really well, scored at the weekend, um, played against uh, Villarreal, I think they played before then. And again, he was one of the better performers. And they're not certain of finishing second at the minute. They're not going to win the league, but they've still got a bit of work to do to stay ahead of Atletico Madrid because they've had a couple of defeats themselves recently. So it's not for this particular tie that the Real Madrid one, uh, sorry, the, the Chelsea game, the Champions League game, is their big priority, really. Mm. You know, a couple of big league games coming up, so the Eagles not usually the easiest of matches for Real Madrid, so possibly they will rest one or two. Not not the biggest of names, but let's say those who come in and out, it might be the alternatives who start this one. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's very possible. Um, like you said, Real, they're not going to win La Liga. Well, it would take a an incredible collapse by Barcelona to allow Real back into that. They're 11 points behind with nine games to go. They're two points ahead of Atletico Madrid, who are the forum team in La Liga right now and, and arguably playing the best football that a Diego Simeone team has ever played from the aesthetic point of view. Like, Atleti are actually playing really nice, fluid football, which is very concerning to me who 
loves the Simeone shithousery, uh, shit but you know it's working for them. They've been they've been fantastic after a really poor start to the season. They've turned it on. Um, right. So semi final wise, then we've both got City versus Chelsea. I think that is... We definitely haven't got City versus Chelsea. No, we don't have City versus Chelsea. We've got City versus Real Madrid. We've got City versus Real Madrid. I think that... I knew I knew I'd said something wrong, <laughs> and I was trying to figure out what I'd said. Um, I think that is... Like, obviously, they played last year. It ended in one of the maddest scenes we've ever seen in the Champions League with that second leg. That is absolute blockbuster stuff in in many ways i think a lot of people will view that as the final mm. like a two-legged final because whoever wins that will be expected to win out but i i do feel like if napoli can get over the milan hump and get to the final and go into that final refreshed and confident i do feel like napoli have it within themselves to potentially blitz one of those teams for, you know, 20 minutes and get two goals and potentially be ahead and then have that ability on the counter-attack when the other side starts piling on the pressure to maybe even add a third or fourth goal. Because I, I could just see a, a mental final where Napoli end up winning 4-2 or something on the right day for them. On the flip side, they might not turn up in the final because the big event, the big stage might all might overawe them and the other side might just sweep the floor with them. So I, I do think we're 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 looking at what should be a good end to this competition as long as Napoli get through. If Napoli don't get through, it, it's absolutely that the final would be City versus Real. Yep, agreed. Right, I want to stick in Spain for a quick second before we transition to the next thing I want to do, Carl. Uh, Valencia mm. are currently sitting 18th in La Liga. Uh, they have lost three of their last four games. They've only won seven games all season. They're three points behind Almeria. As a club, they look completely lost. Now, we've talked about them a bunch over the years. And you've been very, very critical of the, the regime there under Peter Lim and the the treatment of managers, the treatment of players. This looks, to me anyway, this looks unfixable. They look like a team going down. If they do go down, they're looking at potential financial ruin. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable, they're every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter 
at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's a very, very tough thing to sit and watch such a great club go through this and have such an uncertain future. Like, no matter who you support, you don't want to ever see any team go to the wall. And there's a real chance that in six months' time, Valencia Football Club no longer exists, or in, in its current guise anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, this has been such a an appalling, long, slow decline from them. I mean, they were, well, I mean, go back to pre-Rafa at Liverpool, they were Champions League fighting side yeah. for, for quite a long time, like the you know, best part of a decade or so. They were there or very, very nearly there. And obviously in Spain, we've, we've always had that kind of... Um, periods where one team has done really well, whether it's a Depor or it's Valencia or whoever else it is, they've, they've not been like teams who can stay there for 20, 30 years at a time. They do, they definitely do go up and down. But yeah. like you say, Depor, for example, they're a really good example. They won, won La Liga, they were Champions League regulars, and suddenly they were relegated. They were never, let's say, likely to go out of business or, or cease to be as a club. It was just you know very bad work on the transfer market and all the rest of it this is actually really terrible business work as well like the number of contracts they've had to cancel the amount of money they have not received because they wouldn't sell players they wouldn't let players leave who then ran the contracts down and left the amount of money they've spent on players who had absolutely no impact really big wages on players who didn't cost any transfer fees and still had no big impact no real investment from the outside absolutely no um, progression in terms of the commercial work of the club in terms of the you know the, the sponsorship money and everything that they can get coming in which Spain as a, as a whole has largely lagged behind most of the European big leagues and teams in that regard La Liga do a certain amount of work but it's really only the very very top end clubs who have improved their standing let's say in that mm. regard Valencia though are the worst of the worst and because the fans are so so anti uh, the regime the leadership the, the hierarchy of the club they don't really care to put any money in themselves. So it, it's, it's, I wouldn't say there's none because obviously there are, but there are many, many fewer people wearing official merchandise, let's say, yeah. buying official stuff from the club than you would generally expect, than you would have seen previously. And the ownership don't help themselves because they are like very, very open and clear. The family of Peter Lindman, Peter Lindman himself, basically saying, we don't care about the fans. Like the, the daughter in particular has said several times, I don't care what they say. It's our club. We can do what we want. And it obviously harbors like lots of animosity. It's not a good all-round situation for anybody to, to be in, to thrive in. Obviously, there are still a few players like Tony Lato and uh, Jose Gaia who stay there and they're like, they're very, very clear. They'll do everything that they can. But even some people who have been like that, Soler, all his life there in the yeah. end, just gave up, just had to go. Just yeah. there's nothing else he can do. And Obviously, you can understand absolutely at some point those players say, well, you know what? You don't care. Why should I? This is my career. I've only got maybe another five years at the top or whatever. And they do eventually have to move on. So I'm not going to say manage decline because I think it's a complete case of mismanagement and no management in some cases. But the managers, they chant through them. They pick really bizarre appointments. They fall out with them. They promise them shit that they promised the last four and don't do it to the fifth one either who then leaves. They've ended up with Ruben Baraja who... You know, I was coming to the club to help them out administratorially before coachingly. 
Um, that's why they've ended but, up. And he only took the job because of how much he cares about the club. Yeah. Yeah, no it. external manager would even touch the place. No. I mean, they have, I, I must say, you look, sometimes the lineup, you look at it and you think, how are you in the bottom three? Mm. But I only think that up until we get to a certain point of the team, like Manuel Dersfield in goal, I think is perfectly fine. And like a bunch of defenders like Tony Lato, Thierry Correa, Gaia, who we've mentioned. Like there's, there's plenty of decent players there. Guillermoon, you've spoken about a few times before. Mm. And in the field, even, they've got Vilas Moriba this season. He's been on loan. They've got Nico Gonzalez. There's plenty of players. And, he, and he's played well. Nico Gonzalez has played well for them. When he plays, yeah. He doesn't yeah, when he plays. All the time, and then they've got Yunus Musa as well. I mean, Musa, another, like I say, they've got really good players. They, they shouldn't be down the bottom three. But then you get up front where you need, yeah. obviously, goals. And you're looking at a 900-year-old Edison Cavani. Samuel Gastillejo, who I've never, ever liked at all. Mm. Like, used to be a winger. Why they play him up front, I don't know. They're obviously trying to recreate a uh, Giddish, um partnership with Maxi Gomez from maybe five years ago. But Cavani is older and not mobile and not strong and not aggressive. And Castillejo has never been able to shoot or take people on or do anything of note, really. Um, so, I mean, it's rubbish up front. It is properly terrible up front in attack, any kind of build-up play. And there's not a lot of discipline there. Again, you can probably understand this because there's no leadership from the coaching department. There's no leadership from certainly above the coaching department. The turnover of, of players each summer has been ridiculous. They don't really spend any money. You are going to get worse. And this season yeah. has been the worst of the worst. Well, like, let's just let's just take Maxi Gomez as, a, as an example of mismanagement so you buy him from celta you pay 14.5 million and you send two players in the other direction santi mina and jorge sanz you put 140 million euro release clause in his contract this is one of the most highly sought after young strikers around at that time 2019 now admittedly it doesn't go brilliantly. He's a decent first year, 11 goals and 43. <clears throat> the chaos of the club, the lack of development of players. He has seven in 31, five in 32. But he is still relatively young. He's 26 years of age going into the summer, 25 turning 26 in the summer. About to enter his peak years, still highly thought of. And the best deal you can find, because you have to get rid of him, is three million euro so you're taking a substantial hit and you're getting three million euro for him and this season he's been pretty good for Trabzonspor. um like just absolutely dreadful in in all aspects uh the limb family the, the daughter seems like a real piece of work but you look at the managers they've been through so the first manager peter limb had was nuno espirito santo uh, he lasted just over a year. Then they had a caretaker. Then they hired Gary Neville as manager and somehow allowed him to stay in charge for 28 games. He got sacked. They hired Paco Yerestein, former Liverpool assistant manager. He lasted 12 games. Then we had another caretaker. Then it was Cesare Prandelli. He lasted 10 games before he was sacked. Then the caretaker, now the same caretaker each time, Salvador Gonzalez. Uh, so that's three goals for him. Uh, but they had to leave him in charge for a full six months because no one wanted the job. They strike it lucky and they get Marcelino. And he comes in and does well. 
for two years until they fuck him off and he's gone. Uh, Albert Salades comes in. He lasts the rest of the season and then he's gone. We're back to the caretaker. Then Javi Gracie comes in and this is where it gets real weird because he asked to leave multiple times, multiple times tried to resign and they basically held him hostage there and then sacked him the following summer. We're back to the caretaker. Then Bordales comes in. Jose Bordales at that point was pretty highly regarded, I would say, given the work he'd done at Hitafe. Uh, he lasts a season and he's gone. They bring in Gennaro Gattuso. He'd done pretty well uh, at Napoli. He lasts six months. He's out the door. Uh, Salvador Gonzalez is back as caretaker for the one, two, three, four, five, the sixth time. And then Ruben Barraja takes over in February because nobody else wants this job. Because this club is seen as toxic, because that ownership is seen as someone you do not want to work for. And because you're taking over a squad that's got talent, but not in the right areas. It's really tough to see. I, I, my hope is that potentially the club goes the way of Real Oviedo, where people, the fans, people from around the world can buy shares in the club and try and prop them up and keep them alive financially. You, the only thing you need to know about how poorly run Valencia have been, and this is not a Peter Lim thing. This dates way back before Peter Lim. Just go and look at this at the situation with the stadium, where they started to build a new stadium in 2007, and was meant to be ready for the 10-11 season, I believe. And here we sit in 2023, and the stadium's been through a bunch of different owners. It's been through a bunch of different plans, and the capacity has been reduced from 75,000 to 61,000. And now they're suggesting maybe 43,000, which truthfully isn't actually big enough for a club like Valencia, who, when things are good, sell out the 50,000 Mestalla every week. So I, I just like the stadium situation alone, the fact that they've had to renovate the Mestalla a, a couple of times while. They were meant to be building their own their own brand new stadium. It just shows how badly mismanaged this club has been for quite a long time. Too long. I mean, like if they do go down, it's all kinds of problems. But even if they survive and somehow get things back on the even footing, it's such a big long road back to any kind of competent level financially as well as on the on the pitch. I mean. They're a mess. They really are just an absolute mess. And they're, what, three points from safety at the minute, which yeah. is not terrible, but Espanyol are the same points as them. Almeria in better form than them. Gary, at least fight and work hard. Don't score any goals themselves, but grind a few results out. Gaddafi, I don't think, will ever be relegated again. They just know how to get, like, 17 nil nils in a row and stay up somehow. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about them. But, yeah, Valencia are a mess. They might get two wins just somehow because like I said they do have decent players in that middle group but it's it's hard to see where they are at the minute 
Yeah, and I mean, they, they also, you know, they have to play Real Madrid in their, their run-in. They have to play uh, Real Betis in the final game. They've got Celta Vigo in there. And then most of the other games are sort of around the teams that are down at the bottom of the table but should look to be safe but will need, you know, one more win to confirm safety. So it, all in all, it is just, it is a mess. Um. Of that Valencia squad, if they go down, are there a couple or any players that you would take at Liverpool, given the scope and nature of the rebuild we need? Um, I think it could be quite smart to look at clubs that are maybe, you know, unfortunately for them in financial bother, but beneficial for us. I would. I, I wouldn't take too many, I'll be honest, but I would always take Jose Gaya, always. I think he's a great player, really good crosser. Not the most rapid, perhaps, but still quick. But then I think he would be much more of a, let's say, a competition for Andy Robertson than a, a successor. You know, you're basically mm. looking at picking one or the other then. Um, you know, I, I definitely would consider him. There's no no question about that. Um I've always quite liked Diago Herrerin, but he's not really done too much over the last few years. He's a backup goalkeeper, basically. Apart from that, I don't know that there's too many I trust. Tony Lado hasn't really progressed since he was like quite good at sort of 21, 22 sort of age. Um, Nico Gonzalez obviously is on loan, so you know, he's not he's not there. Same with Ulais. Um The rest of them, Kleiber, they've only got on loan. I don't think there's any others that they own as such who I would be rushing to get. Um, I I do like Hugo Guillemot. I like him as a six, and I'm not a big fan of him as a centre back. I think he can be a little bit lightweight as a centre back, but I do like him as a six. Um, I don't know if I want him for us because what we need is a starting six, and I don't think he's that level of player. He's not mobile enough, really. Uh, no, I I would take Yunus Musa because I, I think at twenty with that skill set, I, I think he could be developed into anything you really want him to be. Yeah, he's yeah. also a player who'll qualify as homegrown once he comes of age, which I think is is beneficial. Um, and I don't think he's someone that walks in and you immediately have to make a starter. I think he's somebody that could be a really strong squad player, replacing Oxlade-Chamberlain as an eight who can be dynamic and powerful box-to-box. Yeah, I forgot about Eunice Musa, to be honest. So, yes, of course, you'd go for him if he was a reasonable fee. Just talk to me quickly about Georgie Mamar Dashvili, who is an enormous human being who is being linked to a number of Premier League teams, including Spurs, Leicester, and someone else that I can't think of. Um, might have been Crystal Palace. How highly would you rate him? Do you think he's got a chance to be a, a top-end goalkeeper? Yeah, uh, I do. I mean, uh, he's he's a different type, though, isn't he? That's that's the thing. If you think of the two different types of goalkeepers, and you have your, let's say, Dan De Gea's and your Allisons, one who's going to be you know, very commanding of the box and good with the feet and able to play and all the rest of it, I think he's a little bit more the other way, and that his shot stopping is immense. His mm. reach and his six-yard box for crosses and set pieces and all that kind of stuff, really, really good. One-on-ones, he's pretty good because, again, as you say, he's enormous and he does stand up well. Um, I, I think he's a very good goalkeeper. I think he'd be like, at this stage, at this exact moment, I wouldn't be going to like a Liverpool if I was him to be a second choice. So yeah. Say that first of all. I would say like, 
let's say a Spurs and replace Hugo Lloris, that's a decent one to go to. He could get much, much better, but he's already, let's say, Europa League sort of quality, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Right. <clears throat> let's run through these now. So, uh, Nikki asked this question on Discord um, a couple months ago, maybe, and we we didn't get to it. And I, I sort of half did it on the Daily Red one day. But there are nine teams currently in the mix for potential relegation. Now, I do think that nine is shrinking because I think Palace, having won three in a row, they're going to be safe. Wolves have won back-to-back. I think they're going to be safe. Bournemouth are looking like they're going to be safe. And obviously, West Ham have now taken four points in the last two games, including a point off Arsenal. And, and they're starting to to move away. But let's just include them for the purpose of this, because when, when it was asked, they were included. What players from these clubs would you take at Liverpool as part of the rebuild? So let's start from the top down. Let's start with Palace. Who would you take two or three names? If there is two or three names that might not be for you, who would you take at Liverpool? Dead easy, the first two. We've spoken about them recently, Michael Lisi and Ebi Ezzi, I think. Eze in particular would be, if he was like a reasonable fee, very, very good addition for us because he can play that attacking eight. You could probably use him in a couple of different roles as well. can play on the flanks, but I think he's better centrally. I think if he could be a bit more consistency with his play, he's a very, very good player in the making as a driving force from midfield, somebody can carry the ball, good creativity on him. Elisa, we all know about him, he's 21 years old. There's big, big runway ahead for him. Outside of those two, the only one I would consider from Palace would be Cheikh Dukure, but I think I want someone a bit more progressive than him as a six. If we were to play a guaranteed double pivot in midfield all the time, mm. I'd be more inclined to go towards a Dukure. But if it stays as the you know the four three three, which pivots to a two in the middle, I, I think he needs to be more um, a bit more progressive with his play at times. Yeah, I, I think Dukure's role in our three and how it, not necessarily how it functions, the more, more how it's traditionally functioned when we had Ginny. I think Dukure plays more the Ginny role than the Fabinho role. Um, but yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I also would consider Mark Gwehi, but I do think he's maybe a little bit short and not as commanding as a Jurgen Klopp centre-back needs to be. But yeah, every Chiesi and, and Michael Elise are the, the two obvious ones. I think that everybody should want us to be taking a strong look at because they're phenomenal talents. Uh, what about Wolves then? We know that there's been the Matthias Nunes links. Uh, we've been linked to Ruben Neves since, you know, God's dog was a puppy. Is there anyone else there? Would you Would you have a look at Neves? Would he interest you? What way would you go with this? I like Neves. I just don't like him for how I would like to structure a midfield. Mm. If we were to lose Thiago, let's say, and want to carry on, Neves would be a replacement for him in style, but about 17 levels down. So I I just don't think he represents a good upgrade for us in any regard at all, to be honest. Um, I just just really don't. Maybe if we'd have got him the, you know, 17 years ago when we were first linked with him, it, it could have been a bit different. But in the end, I think he's a bit short of the overall quality level you'd really, really like. Um, Nunez, I think, is a bit more interesting, a couple of years younger, a bit more attack-minded, a bit more agility to his game. But again, I would put a ceiling on how much I'm willing to pay for this. Like mm. 30-ish is about the most I would like to be paying for Matthias Nunez. I know there was talk that 
maybe 34, 35 was agreed last year, that sort of thing. So, okay, but I'd want him to be particularly good. And so far this season, we've seen the good and the largely irrelevant from him, yeah. to be honest. So, uh, I would take him price dependent. I would still take Ryan Aitnuri because I think there's yes. a great player there to be had in a very attack-minded team. Um, bit of pace, good crossing, quite aggressive. Apart from that, the only other one I think I would consider now, and I, I did use like Pedro Neto a lot, but we're talking like two years of injuries now. so Yeah, and, and serious injuries as well. Yeah. So I think the only one for me now to consider would be still getting Matthias Cunha, but again, it would only be if there was a, a shift to more of a 4-4-2-ish sort of system. If we're mm-hmm. staying at the 4-3-3, I don't think there's a place for Cunha for us. No, I think that's fair. Um, Bournemouth, they went in January and were aggressive and got some players in, and they've now won three of four and given themselves a really, really good chance at staying up. Would you say they've proven Scott Parker right? <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Scotty Two Colts talked himself into the sack at Bournemouth. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> This is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My LibertyShield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super-fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac, and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout went off to conquer Europe and lasted about three months and got sacked again Scotty twice sacked not very good but uh, Gary O'Neill I mean he got the job basically because they couldn't find anyone else and uh, they went through a rough patch without question they had a good start under him Went through a really rough patch and they've now come out the other side and a couple more wins and you, you'll you be looking at Bournemouth in the Premier League next season. Yeah, and I think that that would be a massive, massive achievement. Mm. Absolutely huge for that club. So uh, two players who I would look at here. One has barely featured for them since they bought him, but he's a really, really good defender, Ilya Zabani. Yeah, he's, he's my, on my I, list. I expect that we're going to be seeing more of him next season and this is just a... Let's get you in. Let's get you integrated. And once we're he, safe, he arrived we're... injured as well, so that he yeah. might not be up to a hundred percent as yet. Um, the other one who I would take, I don't actually think is like anywhere near Champions League class. I just really like him as a footballer, Jaden Anthony. I think he's a very, very impactful player off the bench. If he was free or near enough, I, I'd consider him as part of the rebuild as like our fifth, sixth attacker for the wide areas. But not paying money for him. Sorry. I think they're going to be quite fun next season if they can. If they keep Ahmed Traore, hmm. which I think they will if they stay up, I think that's the agreement that they have. If they stay up, they keep him. I think uh, Uatara looks like a guy that 
Tavares. No, he he looks like he might pop next season. Um, I think I think Tavernier has been impressive in spurts this season. It looks like they might have Enzo Lafie coming in from Laurent if they stay up. Obviously, the owner of Bournemouth also owns a, a large chunk of Laurent, and I think that's a deal he's keen to to see happen. So yeah, they could be they could be a lot of fun next season because he I, I think he's going to try and keep hold of a lot of these players. They'll be hopeful that Lloyd Kelly stays fitter next season and can maybe lock down left back and then Zabarni and Zanisi in the middle. There's there's the shape of something taking place there, and it's it's nice to see. So I'm actually rooting for Bournemouth. I, I've had them in my bottom three to go down all season, but I'm rooting for them to stay up. Um, what about West Ham, Carl? Now. Recent form has been improved. Uh, they've taken eight points from the last five games, which is hugely better than what was going on beforehand. They did get walloped at home by Newcastle. Um, and it, it seems to be the European run that's keeping David Moyes in a job. But I mean, this is a club that spent a lot of money last summer, brought in a lot of talent, and then have routinely shit the bed. Who would you take from West Ham should they go down? Which is still, I think, still a possibility. They're a very odd club. They really are. And the problem is, obviously, if they were to go down, fine. But if they don't, then the players who you would look at would be like six times more expensive. Mm. So for a Liverpool perspective and where we are and what we need, if they went down, I would look at Declan Rice. If they went down, I would consider Lucas Paqueta for you know part of our midfield rebuild. I don't trust any of the other players. See, you, you, I was looking through their squad. Like, I like Ariola as a goalkeeper, but he's not the type of goalkeeper that you know that we we have. He's not you know as confident with his feet. Um, but if you know if Kelleher was going and Moyes is staying, then Ariola might as well leave because he's not going to get in over Fabianski while Moyes is is breathing air. Um, I I really like. A couple of players at the club, like you, you know, I love Skimaka, but he's had such a bad season that I don't even know what to make of it. I, I like Max Cornet, and as, as a sixth attacker, I'd probably consider him. I, I'd be tempted to try them on Paqueta anyway, because it hasn't really clicked with him there, and he has looked a bit fed up at times. And I, I do just wonder if if maybe there's a possibility. That if you offered them what they paid, that they might consider it. Um, because maybe they'd just like to cut their losses and move on from from the, the Paqueta experiment. Um I mean Zuma wouldn't be for me. He's not the type of centre back I like. The centre back they have that I really like is is Agard, but he's injured so often that it just doesn't make any sense. Um, if if they went down and Rice was 40 million, which is what he's actually worth, and we were moving to a, a two-man midfield, and he was going to play as a box-to-box midfielder next to somebody who's going to sit in and hold and keep things ticking over, and that's, I'm going to get the best of Declan Rice by, you know, playing him in his actual position. Then I I definitely have a look at it, but when I see people saying we should spend eighty or ninety million on him and play him as a six, I I genuinely don't know what planet these people live on because 
he's not a six. His best attributes are his ability to carry the ball and his off-ball running. They're not attributes of a six. They're attributes of a box-to-box midfielder. Suchek is the, the one that sort of sits a lot more there, and Rice is able to go and do what he wants. But uh, I, he's been so poor this season. And he's been completely checked out. And for a guy who's wearing the captain's armband, that's just a big red flag to me. Like, you're the captain of this club. And you're sitting doing press conferences, talking about wanting to leave and go and play Champions League football and how much you deserve it. Like, that's a huge red flag to me. That shows no leadership. It shows quite the opposite. And again, like for a, a player of his age, what is he, 24 now? I don't know that I can remember a 24-year-old having a season this bad and then, you know, going on to be a great player. He has been atrocious this season. And pretty much every good midfielder he's come up against has made him look really, really poor. He's looked levels below even Romeo Lavia, when they beat Southampton 1-0, Lavia made him look look weak and look poor. So I, I just I have real concerns about Rice. But again, as a box-to-box midfielder in a two, I do think he could be a very good player. I, I don't think he'll ever be a great player. I don't think he's got it between the years to be a great player. But I do think he could be a very good player for three or four years. I don't think we're going to go to a two on a regular basis, though. So, And I don't think no. West Ham are going down, in all honesty. No, neither do I. I think they've got too much talent to go down. I think he's going to go to Arsenal. I think they're the club that will make the mistake of paying, you know, what West Ham are asking. Uh, Leeds United. Um, Luis Sinistera, Tyler Adams, and Brendan Aronson in that order. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um what about Everton? Now, taking a, taking out of the picture that they're Everton and that they're our rivals, there's one name to me that just leaps out. And if they go down, I don't care about the rivalry. I want us throwing a bid in for Amadou Onana. I don't care whether it's unlikely that they'll accept it or not. If they go down with the financial trouble they're in already, if you throw $40 million at them for Onana, if they've gone down, I would bet they'll take it because they'll need him off the books. I was fully expecting you to go for good Irishman Seamus Coleman there. Well, we do need a backup for Trent. <laughs> he, could, he could stay in his own house. We could we could go from 38-year-old Milner to 35-year-old Coleman. That would be. But good. you know the difference is Seamus Coleman's actually a good player. Um, as a right-back. Seamus Coleman is has been one of the better right backs in the Premier League for well not in the last couple of years, obviously, but you know, for a long time he's one of the better right backs in the league and can actually do the job. Um I would be going for Anana at a reasonable price, Ben Godfrey, because he's not at the best of last year or so because of injury and that. And if they were just looking to offload him cheap because they bought him very cheap, they only paid a million and a half for him, I would also get the Mary Gray. Yeah, I do like Tamari Gray. I still don't understand why Leicester gave up on him the way they did. I thought that was just bizarre. Um, but yeah, I think that's fair. Um, right, into the bottom three then. 
Nottingham Forest. I'm afraid I loaded up Nottingham Forest squad and my computer didn't have enough memory to load all their players, so we'll have to move on. I, I would take Gibbs White. I would take Brennan Johnson. I would take Daniil. Mm, that's probably it. I do like Musa Niakate, but I worry about a player that missed four months through injury, came back and got injured again. So, you know, um, four not, months through an injury that Steve Lucia. Cooper said will take a couple of weeks. Um, I mean, depending on the price, Gibbs White and Brennan Johnson would be really good signings. Like Brennan Johnson last year when they were in the championship was being spoken about as like eight, nine, ten million pounds. And they said no, to be fair. But now you're looking at probably four times that amount. And I'm not sure he's a 40 million pound attacker. No, I think if they go down, that price obviously comes down. I think if they stay up and he wants to leave, I think it's going to be that 40 million fee. But if they go down, 25, 20 might do it, 20 and some add-ons. Because they're not going to be in a position of power because they spent so much money that they're going to have to have a bit of a fire sale. And they've got a million players under contract. So Johnson is one of the more appealing players for other clubs to come in and get. Uh, Gibbs White, they paid 25 plus add-ons. None of those add-ons would have kicked in yet. I wouldn't imagine unless there was like some for appearances. But I'd imagine they're mostly been linked to staying in the division and things like that. So if you offered them the 25 they put in, they might take it. Um, I love Morgan Gibbs-White. He, he would be on my, my short, short list of players for us to sign anyway this summer. I think as a creator from midfield, I think he's, I think he's going to be of a very high level in a year or two. I think he's had a, I think he's had a really good season. Yeah, I, I would be open to one, but I, Again, I think a lot of this is price dependent, and I don't see a hundred percent absolute fit for Gibbs White in the system that we play. I think he could play that right-sided midfield role very easily. I mean, you look at the things we ask Henderson and, and Harvey Elliott to do. There's nothing there that Morgan Gibbs White can't do very easily, and he can expand that role beyond it. So I think he can fit really well on, on the right. If Brendan Johnson came in, I think his best role for us would be on the right of the front three is like the Mo backup. Um, I prefer him there than on the left. I think he's I think he's better when he's coming in from the right wing, even though he's right footed. Um, Leicester City, Carl, the, the the team that I think is the biggest surprise, other than West Ham, that they're in this mess, and the team that right now looks the most likely to go down, in my view, of anybody in the league. I think they look hopeless. I think they look clueless. I think the players look burnt out. And, you know, they appointed Dean Smith. So um, no confidence really there in his ability to keep them up. Who from Leicester would you have a look at? Uh, Wood Feist, Danny Ward and Jamie Vardy. <laughs> Get the band back together. Um, well, Wood Feist obviously was, was Liverpool's top goal scorer in the league <laughs> after the World Cup break for quite a long time until Mo copped himself on. Um, James Madison, Harvey Barnes, that's it. Yeah, they're, they're the two, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, indeed, he's had so many injury issues that you couldn't consider it. I love James Justin, but the guy had an ACL tear and then an Achilles tear. Yeah. So I'm sorry, James, it's not going to happen. 
Uh, I do like Christensen, the young left back they brought in from Copenhagen, but they only brought him in in January. I assume, given his age, if they go down, they'll just keep him. I don't know why they spent all that money on a left back. They had Luke Thomas, a perfectly serviceable young left back, but that's the decision that Brendan made. Um, I think my favorite thing that Brendan has done there, though, is he, he went over the heads of all of the recruitment staff to force through a move for Yannick Vestergaard who was clearly shit, when he flopped as everybody knew he would, he then went over the, the heads of the recruitment staff once again to bring in Harry Suter, who's basically the same player, and he has not done well either. So, yeah, I mean, well done, Brendan. This goes on your permanent record. Despite the fact you were sacked, if they go down, it is your fault. I don't want to hear about a lack of investment. There's no excuse for this. this squad being where they are. Uh, I would take Barnes, despite the fact that we've got a bit of a logjam uh, of of right-footed left wingers, and um, I would take Madison because the talent is is the talent. This is the most interesting one for me, Carl, and we'll finish on this. Southampton. I think there's there's at least four players here that I can make a real argument would be very very good signings for us. Right. I'll try and get your four. Okay. Bella Kocha. Absolutely. Romeo Lavia. Absolutely. Camaldine Sulemana. Absolutely. And for the fourth, unless you're going with the very, very recently returned from injury right back. He hasn't I don't It's think not Livermento. It's not Livermento. But if he if he if he wasn't just coming back from injury, yeah. he would be on my list. But because he is and it was an ACL tear. I, I'm going to need to see six months of what what what's left. So let let let's wait for him to play next season and see how he does. And so is your fourth Gavin Bazunu? No, okay. no, it's not. I, I do think Gavin Bazunu is, is going to be a top top goalkeeper. I think he's got all the tools. My fourth is Kyle Walker Peters, and my reasoning is both sides. Both sides. We need a backup for Trent. And I think we should be selling Costas this summer. And I think he can fit in on both sides. And I think if you have him, so you've got Trent and Robbo, because I don't expect that we'll sign a starting left back, which although I think we should, I think it'll be Trent and Robbo. If he's your third and can play both sides, and I actually think he's equally good on both sides, then you can still have Ramsey as a backup right back and maybe Owen Beck or I can't remember the name of the other young left-back we have, is the option there. So you've got five full-backs, but he takes up the majority of the minutes when Robbo or Trent need a rest. I think Kyle Walker-Peters is a very, very solid player who's consistent. And he rarely drops, even in a team that's been a bit of a train wreck at times, he's rarely below like a six and a half to seven out of ten. He just goes about his business, does his job. There's very little fuss. I think he's someone, if they go down, that we should look to snap up because he's the right age. You could get two good years out of him and sell him on at a profit. I would be in for Kyle Walker-Peters. Yeah, I think there's a good argument to be made there, especially if we are only going to sign one fullback because we don't sign many fullbacks and we need 700 players elsewhere. Mm. Um, I'm going to add one more player to this. But I'm excited. Be, yeah, it would be on the condition of 
um, they only have him on loan and they've got an option to buy him. So if they bought him and we could either pay exactly what they pay, which is a fairly low fee, I would take him then. Just as part, because we've got to do a rebuild and it covers so many positions, I'd go for Ainsley Maitland Niles. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I, I would take Ainsley Maitland Niles as well. And again, you know, like with, with Walker Peters, he just he can fill both fullback spots and he can play in midfield. He allows you tactical flexibility because he can play in a two, in a three. He can play wide on the right, wide on the left. And he'll just give you six and a half to seven or ten. If if we're looking for someone to replace James Milner, and and by that what I mean is someone that can go and stand in a, in a position and not embarrass himself, well, Ainsley Maitland-Niles is like the high end of that. Because he's actually good in most areas. I, I don't really understand what's gone on at Arsenal that he isn't a very, very vital part of their squad because he could be cover everywhere for them. I would definitely take Ainsley Maitland Niles. I think he's really good. Yeah. I, like look, there's there's a lot of talk about Southampton at the moment. The the, the guy that owns them took a loan to buy the club of 130 or 140 million. You could go to Southampton and do most of our rebuild. Suleimana can play both sides up front, so he can be that attacking option that we we allegedly want to add. He's got enormous potential. Lavia as a six is maybe the best young six in world football. Bella Kocha as the centre-back that we need. And Walker Peters as the fullback option, and, and Maitland Niles if they buy him or whatever the situation would be, I, I'd go to Arsenal and see if they'd sell him directly to us if if Southampton don't take up the offer. But I would go to Southampton and, and offer them a significant wedge for for Lavia, Bella Kotchuk, um Sulemana, and and Walker Peters. I, I I would have, I'd be happy enough. Like Lavia, let's say thirty. 35 maybe, Bella Kotchup maybe 25, uh, maybe 15 for Walker Peters and let's say 25 or so for some amount. That's 100 million. Now, I, I know some people would probably get upset if we spent 100 million on four lads from a relegated team, but it's not where you buy them from. It's how they fit into your squad and what they can offer. I, I would do most of our rebuild from the relegation teams because I think you can get, if you got those Plus, let's say, let's say Everton go down and you grab Onana. I mean, that's very close to us finished. We'd need one more in midfield as a starter, maybe, maybe Gibbs White. I don't know, but like you could do most of our business from those teams that are in that relegation mess, uh, mess, and end up far better off than we currently are. Now you might have. The odd cry are so oh, we were promised Jude Bellingham and we're signing players from Southampton and Nottingham Forest. It it doesn't matter where they come from. Andy Robertson came from Hull. Ginny came from relegated Newcastle. And they were absolutely perfect for what we needed. These young players are perfect for what we need and have the potential to be top, top draw players. I really like that voice that you did. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, that's my impersonation of the the cry arsers. 
Um, right, that will do us for today. Uh, have you anything you want to plug before we go? Uh, can't remember. No, I'm going on holiday tomorrow, so no, no, no reading. No Another reading. holiday. He was only in Brazil recently. That wasn't a holiday. Was and he's on holiday again, folks. This is this is the, the the hedonistic lifestyle that you support by, you know, reading his work on the independent. So continue to do that, so that Carol can continue to have eleven holidays a year. Uh, Drinkle is in Mexico, so you know it's just me here holding down the fort, doing a bit of work. It's a shocking, it's a shocking state of affairs, Carl. I mean, I've already promised you I'll do one while I'm away on holidays. I don't know what you cry ass and pull your hand and worse than them ones on Twitter. Where are you going? Tenerife. Oh, very nice, very nice. Well, if anyone else is in Tenerife and wants to talk football, go and find match it. He'll he'll sit and talk to you all day. I will Just... run away down the beach. <laughs> Radio, thanks for listening, folks. We will see you later in the week when we are back to preview Nottingham Forest. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.